Amen. Well, hey, let's pray together before we open up God's Word this morning. Father, I, I just want to pray back to you what we're saying. Um, I will not boast in anything. And may our boast this morning be in Christ and Christ alone. We're reminded this morning of how unworthy um, we are to sing to you, how worthy I am to preach about you and to tell others about you. But what a beautiful privilege it is to be invited into your church, in, into this calling of being an ambassador, a representation of who you are. Lord, I pray that you would um, really fill this time with your spirit. And may we boast in Christ well through your word. Father, as we turn to Nehemiah 1 this morning, um, much like the disciples, I, I come before you asking you to teach us how to pray. We see your rich prayer life, Christ. We see the, the necessity of prayer, or at least the expectation of prayer. And I pray this morning, as we open up your word, you would teach us how to pray. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Good morning. Hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me um, to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. If you're new with us, um, we, we're just now kicking off the book of Nehemiah. The last six or seven weeks, we've been working our way through the book of Ezra because the, the belief is that Ezra and Nehemiah have historically always been one book. And they really tell the, one story. It chronicles the return of God's people who had been exiled and in captivity in the land of Babylon. And it chronicles their return back to the land of Israel. So now the people of Israel, once they get back to uh, Jerusalem and back to Israel, they have to rebuild their worship. They have to rebuild their collective identity. Uh, and then they have to rebuild their city. And Nehemiah is going to be mostly about the rebuilding of the city. So we're in Nehemiah chapter 1. Let me read the first three verses for us this morning. It says, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. All right, let me give a little bit of context, okay? So the year is approximately 446 B.C. This is about 12 years after Ezra arrived in Jerusalem, which means that Ezra and Nehemiah were somewhat counterparts. Only 12 years separated uh, Ezra's return and Nehemiah's return, but apparently Nehemiah didn't quite make the boat with Ezra. He didn't return with Ezra, and we can presume the reason Nehemiah didn't make it back to Jerusalem with Ezra was because of his high government Position. Look with me at verse 11 of this text. Nehemiah says, I was a cupbearer to the king. A cupbearer was a highly placed political official who had the utmost trust of the king, and the king being Artaxerxes, who was the king of Persia. So Nehemiah probably didn't make it back to Jerusalem with Ezra because of his high government official. So one day, while he's in the citadel, standing in the courts before King Artaxerxes, he sees somebody he recognizes, this guy named Hanani. Now, it says Hananiah is a brother. We don't know if that's his legitimate blood relative or if it's just a brother, a Jewish brother from Jerusalem. But this guy had been in, in Judah. He had been in the city of Jerusalem, and Nehemiah is desperate to figure out what's going on in Jerusalem. Like, like what, what has happened since everybody's returned? And we have to understand, y'all, Nehemiah has never been to Jerusalem, never seen Jerusalem. Nehemiah was born in captivity. He was raised in captivity. He, he matured in captivity. Because the date, 446 B.C., is about 140 years 
after Babylon destroyed Jerusalem and exiled all the people of Israel. Okay, so you following me? So Nehemiah has never seen Jerusalem. But he sees this guy, Hanani, that he recognized, and he wants to know desperately what's going on in Jerusalem. And y'all, the news is not good. Look at verse 3. It says, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great shame. They are full of shame. Why? Like, why are they so ashamed? Because the walls of Jerusalem are broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. Church, these broken down walls really carry some, some pretty negative consequences. I mean, when you look at antiquity and, and just the way that architecture was built, this, this, these broken down walls of a city meant frightening insecurity. It, it, was, it was bad news for their commercial development. It meant economic vulnerability. But when it comes to the city of Jerusalem, it actually carries a much deeper meaning. Okay, so, so follow this line of thought for a second. As we've stated all throughout the book of Ezra, the people of Israel were the covenant people of God. Right? Selected, sovereignly selected by God to represent God. So they were to live in such a way that when people looked at the kingdom of Israel, they saw the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdom of earth. Right? They're an outpost of the kingdom of heaven. That's what the people of Israel were called to do. To show the world and the surrounding nations around them that really what abundant life can look like when someone submits themselves to God, to his will, to his ways, to his word. Jerusalem better known as the city of God, is really just an extension of that destiny. What I'm saying is that when people saw the city of Jerusalem, that in and of itself is a reflection of their God. As host of the people of God, however it goes with Jerusalem is what most nations would think about the God of that city. Let me prove my point by just showing you in Scripture, okay? Jerusalem was to be a reflection of God. Psalm 48 reads this. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Jerusalem, in the far north, the city of the great king, within her citadels, God has made himself known. Do you hear the, the word there? That however it goes with Jerusalem, that's where God makes himself known in the city of Jerusalem. That psalm actually concludes like this. Walk about Jerusalem. Go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation, this is God. Did y'all, did y'all hear that? Go look at Jerusalem, see the city of Jerusalem, and then you can tell people, this is God. The city of Jerusalem was to be a reflection of the image of God. Now listen to this as a segue here. If the walls of Jerusalem are broken down, what that's communicating to the surrounding nations is that their God is broken down. A vulnerable city is just a vulnerable God. An insecure city is an insecure God. Much like Elijah mocking the gods of the Canaanites, you know, uh, when when fire came down with Baal, now the tables have turned. The Canaanites and all the surrounding nations are beginning to mock their God because of the state of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was to be a reflection of their God. All right, so what does that mean for us today? Let me set up Nehemiah. Listen, I do not adhere to replacement theology. For many of you, you're like, I don't even know what you said, and I don't care to know what you said, okay? But some may, so let me just share this. I don't adhere to replacement theology. Replacement theology states that the church has totally replaced the people of Israel. I don't believe that. I believe that there's a future for Israel. It's just personally where I stand. We can get a cup of coffee. We can talk about this. Romans 11.1 1 says, does that mean God has rejected his people Israel? He says, by no means. I believe that there's a future for the people of Israel. So I don't adhere to replacement theology. But I do adhere to what we call covenantal theology. That although there is a future for Israel, as in the 
old covenant, the people of Israel were to reflect their God. Now in the new covenant, the people of the church are to reflect our God. We have been grafted in, right, by grace so that when people look at the church, when people look at you and I, they should be able to get a picture as to who our God is. That's what I adhere to. So church, what that means is the church is to be a reflection of our God. But I, I fear that as we look around, our walls are kind of broken down. I know you are so tired of me just like saying this. We, walk, we walked through this in the book of Acts. We talked about it in Ezra. But I, I just fear that when people see the church, largely in the West, the church in the West, we misrepresent God so often that it just looks like our walls are broken down, right? Let me give you a few reasons why I think that. I think instead of representing a God that values unity, our walls are broken down by infighting within the church and over secondary, secondary theological issues and, and kind of denominational hardlines, right? I think instead of representing a God that is absolutely moral, our walls are broken down by churches all across the country that have adopted and are even teaching that there is no absolute morality, that morality can be culturally defined, that to each his own. Who am I to judge, right? You hear that taught even behind pulpits. I think instead of representing a God that is rich in mercy and abundant in love, we believe God is merciful to those that agree with me. And we believe God is loving if you possess the same political leanings that I do. Right? Is that not what we've represented over the last several years? Let me give you one more. Instead of representing a God, I think that is unbelievably worthy of our worship. I think our walls are broken down because many in our churches can't even see God because of the massive platforms we have built for charismatic pastors who peddle God's word to build their own brands instead of giving glory and honor and praise to God. Church, I fear that, that as we look at the church in the West specifically, our walls are broken down. When people see the church, do they get a full representation of who God is? But let's make it a little bit more personal because we know that the church the big C church, right, is just a collection of a lot of individual believers in Christ, right? All, only individuals who have put their faith in Jesus, like you and I could collectively make up the church. Let me just ask you, how are you doing in your reflection of God? When people see your life and you say, yeah, I'm a Christian, what, what do they see? Do they see Christ? I think the reality is, church, that we could all use a little bit of rebuilding, when we talk about reflecting the image of God, I, th I think we could, be, we, could, we could use some building. And church, this is the story of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is all about rebuilding the city of God, rebuilding the image of God. It's a story that shows how God, I believe, builds his church. But not in the way that Nehemiah has so consistently been abused and misused. How many of you have ever sat in churches where Nehemiah was preached because you know what's coming, right? A building campaign. Nehemiah has, has been so abused for a physical building campaign, but Nehemiah is not about how God builds a physical church. Nehemiah is about how God goes about building a spiritual church from the inside out. How does he build you and I so that when people see us, they see Jesus? That's what Nehemiah is going to show us, how God builds his church. So Nehemiah chapter 1 is going to be our text for today. And what we're going to see is that God builds his church with prayer. God builds his church with prayer. Church, nine times in this short little book, we find Nehemiah praying. And chapter one is by far the most detailed account of his prayer life. So as we begin to move into this topic of prayer, how many of you would say the following is true for you? You would say, I, I, I know I should pray. At least I know I should pray more. I see Jesus is teaching on prayer. I know it's an expectation to pray, but, but the reality is Prayer's hard for you. 
Like you don't know what to say. You're standing at the red light and you're trying to pray and people see your mouth move and you know people are watching you, so that feels a little weird. Or you're like me and every time you sit down to try to pray, all of a sudden you're thinking about all kinds of stuff, like just totally distracted when it comes to prayer. How many of you don't raise your hand and would say, that's probably true for me? Like I know I should pray, I just struggle to pray. Man, listen, if that's you this morning, be encouraged because you are not alone. Don't let these hyper-spiritual people sitting next to you think they've got prayer figured out. Y'all, prayer, what we know from Scripture, is a learned discipline. It's something that we learn. It's something that we grow in. In fact, one theologian says it's moving from duty to delight. The prayer begins as this, I know I should do this, but the more you begin to grow in prayer, the more you begin to delight to do this. Y'all, prayer is a journey. We're all learners. Jesus' disciples, I opened up thinking about this. Jesus' disciples saw Jesus praying. What would you give just to be able to be there? Like to, to watch Jesus pray. And they observed him praying and they go, man, we still don't get it. They said, Jesus, would you please teach us to pray? So church, listen, if you're discouraged in your prayer life, be encouraged this morning. All you need to grow in prayer is that humility. That humility to say, teach me to pray, Lord. Help me to pray. All right, so prayer is a learned discipline. Let's read our text today and learn how to pray. Nehemiah chapter 1, picking up in verse 4. It says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. All right, I got to pause. I told you all last week, every time we see fasting in the Bible, I just got to take a pause for a second. What did Nehemiah do to extenuate his prayers? What did he do to bring a little bit more power to his prayer life? He fasted. Fasting is the giving up of food for a set period of time for a spiritual purpose. And Nehemiah fasted for a spiritual purpose, to bring a bit more resolution to his prayer. Andrew Murray says this about prayer and fasting. He says prayer is reaching out to the unseen, right? Isn't that true? When we're praying, we're reaching out to the unseen. He says fasting is letting go of the seen. Sometimes we can extenuate, like bring some more power to reaching out to the unseen when we're willing to let go, especially of food, because it's something your body is craving constantly, right? We can fast to bring a bit more power to our prayers. All right, this is not about fasting. That was last week. Let's pick up in verse 5, and I'll read all the way through the end of our text. It says, Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Do you see that? I'm going to bring you back to Jerusalem. Why? Because my name dwells there. Again, Jerusalem is a reflection of the character of God. It says, they are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Church, God builds his church with prayer. So here's point number one for you this morning. When I look at Nehemiah's prayer life, I see that prayer is relational. Prayer is relational. 
The first thing that Nehemiah did when he heard this devastating news about the city of Jerusalem is hit his knees and begin to cry out to a person, to a, to a being, to a person that has characteristics and, and personality, something you can actually know. And he seems to have known this God. Look, he says, I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Nehemiah is crying out to a person. He's establishing relationship. He's praying relationally. Now listen, instinctually, anybody can pray, right? It's within our DNA to pray. It's called foxhole religion. Where are the soldiers at? Right? Everybody knows about this foxhole religion. Something bad happens and anybody's like the most staunch atheist, denies God, rejects God, doesn't believe in God. When something bad happens in their life, something comes out of you, you begin to pray. Because Romans 1 says that there's something in your conscience that says God must exist, that he's a creator. They're, your conscience knows. So anybody can instinctually pray, right? But a Christian doesn't just pray instinctually. A Christian prays with knowledge. Look at what Nehemiah does here. He prays to a God that he knew, a God that he knew personally, a God that he knew relationally. He says, you are great and you are awesome. And he's on his knees. And in verse 6, he calls himself a servant. You know why he's on his knees? Because he knows how great and how awesome the God that he's addressing is. Even his posture demonstrates his knowledge of who God is. There's a fantastic definition of prayer by the late Tim Keller. Keller says, prayer is personal communicative response to the knowledge of God. It's a response to the knowledge of God. Nehemiah hits his knees and just responds to who he knows God to be. And who he knew God to be was, was transcendent. That's a, just a funny theological word to say, awesome. So, so other, so distinct, so far away from what you can grasp. He is so great, Nehemiah addresses him in his transcendence. And he recognizes, in, in the light of God's transcendent, I am nothing. I must come empty-handed. Oh, God of heaven. That's what he prayed. So he comes empty-handed in light of his knowledge. But, you know, he doesn't come uninvited. Look what else he knows about God. He says, oh, Lord, God of heaven. You're transcendent, you're great, and you're awesome, but you also keep covenant and steadfast love with those who love you and keep your commandments. Nehemiah knew that God was transcendent in church, but he also knew he was intimate, that, that he was loving. That's that word hesed. You all remember us talking about that all summer? It's the hesed word. He says he's steadfast in love. That word is often translated as good, kind, merciful steadfast in love. He's saying that is who God is. So although I come to God in prayer empty-handed, I still, because of his love, get to come invited. That's who God is. He comes in light of that knowledge. So church, this morning when we think about prayer as relational, do you know God? Like, do you know how great and how awesome he is? How holy, holy, holy he is? Does that impact your prayer life? Do you know who you're addressing when you come to God? Do you know how loving he is? How kind and, and merciful and gracious that he is. How much he yearns to hear your voice in prayer. Because he is both of those things. Church, do you know God? L listen to this verse in Hebrews 10. It says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart. That I think that's one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. 
It means that you can actually come into the presence of God in prayer with confidence, no fear, not worried that he's going to smite you, not worried he's going to kill you, not worried about anything. You can actually come with confidence because of what Jesus has done for you. Because of his steadfast love in Christ, we get to draw near to God in prayer. He's relational. So prayer, as Keller says, is the personal response to the knowledge of God. So, so listen to Keller's logic here. He always teaches with such logic. He says, prayer is the personal response to the knowledge of God. So then, prayer is profoundly altered by the amount and the accuracy of that knowledge. Did y'all hear that? Prayer is just responding verbally to your knowledge of God, which means that your prayer life will grow as your knowledge of God grows. The more we cultivate a knowledge of who God is, the deeper and the richer our prayer life becomes because prayer is just responding to our knowledge of God. So fortunately for us this morning in Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah is going to show us how we can grow in that knowledge. So prayer is relational. Point number two for us is that prayer is scriptural. You want to talk about being, being rich in prayer? We've got to bring the scriptures into our prayer life. Prayer is scriptural. All right, so let me give you some history. In 1648, the churches of England, Scotland, and Ireland formed this assembly to come together to create some some question and answer format of of doctrine that can help disciple people within their churches. Anybody know what that that document is called today? I know Elizabeth knows. She's teaching her kids. The Westminster Catechism. The Shorter Westminster Catechism, created in 1648. You can find it. Google it. It's a document. It's super helpful. I want to actually recommend it to you to put it in your mind. Memorize it. It's this question and answer format that will help disciple you about what the basic scriptural truths are. So the question number one in this catechism is this. What is the chief end of man? You ever heard that question? What's the chief end of man? Like, why do you and I exist? Like, why are we on this earth? Why are we breathing? What is the purpose of creation? The answer, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Did y'all hear that? Did you hear how relational that is? That your existence is to enjoy God think that's so untrue for so much of our lived experience. At least for me, I, I, I grew up thinking that the chief end of man is to please this big cop in the sky. I better do whatever is right so that he doesn't smite me or hurt me. I just gotta, I gotta please him. That's sometimes that's the image of our God, but that's not God. To have a true knowledge of God means that, that we get to enjoy him forever. Question number two then asks this. What rule then has God given us to direct us and help us learn how to glorify him and enjoy him forever. You want to hear their answer? The word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and the New Testaments. It is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify him and enjoy him. Church, prayer is relational. And the more that you know about God, the deeper your prayer life becomes. And that means, and the, and the means in which God has provided so that we can grow in our knowledge of God is found right here. This is why we want you in this book. We we don't want you in this book so that you can cross off some to-do list of daily quiet time. I I don't want you in this book so that you can rack up a ton of Bible knowledge. Great for you if you can tell me where Haggai is in the Old Testament, okay? But if that's it, you're missing the point. The whole point of being in this book is to get to know God, like to actually know Him. Church, prayer is relational, but it's also scriptural. And scripture is how we get to know who this God is. In Nehemiah's prayer, he quotes the book of Deuteronomy constantly. 
In verse 8 in our text today, he quotes Deuteronomy 28. In verse 9, he quotes Deuteronomy 30 and Deuteronomy 12. In verse 10, he quotes Moses exactly from Deuteronomy chapter 9 and 29. Church, prayer is scriptural. Nehemiah was a student of the scriptures, and Nehemiah knew who his God was because of his study within the scriptures. Here's the crazy thing about knowing a lot about God. You know there's a difference? Do you know that you can know a lot about God and never really know him? Like, you can know a lot about God and scare, like in a scary way, you can have the demons as your companions in that endeavor. James says that the demons know a lot about God. Pharisees knew a lot about God. You can know a lot about God and still miss a knowledge of God. So I'm not talking about some cognitive knowledge. I'm talking about an experiential knowledge. Let me illustrate my point. How many of y'all took high, uh, high school Spanish? How many of you can speak Spanish? Thanks, David. You don't count. You see my point, right? I took high school Spanish. I passed that class. I made A's on all my tests. I can speak Cerro Spanish. And I had to look that up just to prepare for this sermon. <laughs> Do you know why I can't speak Spanish? Because the methodology of my Spanish learning was all about knowledge accumulation. I took some flashcards and I put all my Spanish words on them things and I memorized them all just so I could pass the test. But none of that knowledge within my mind actually translated to lived experience. You couldn't put me anywhere and put me to speak Spanish because I learned a lot, but I never really learned about speaking Spanish. You see the difference? You can know a ton in your mind, but it may not translate into lived experience. Church, the scriptures are intended to be lived. Relationship with God is intended to be alive. Experience, not just, not just cognitive. And, and what I see in Nehemiah is a student of the scriptures. I see a student of God. As he was reading Deuteronomy, he was, he was gaining some cognitive knowledge. He's seeing that, that God is great, that God is steadfast in his love, that he keeps covenant. He sees that he's a, he's a, a fulfillment of his promises. I mean, all throughout this, as he's studying Deuteronomy, he's learning some things about God. And then he begins to apply that knowledge. He begins to stand on that knowledge in prayer. He begins to ask God to be faithful to who he has called himself to be. And what we're going to see in next week's sermon in, in Nehemiah chapter 2 is that the prayer paid off. God actually answered his prayer. Look at verse 8 of chapter 2 real quick. The king, he says, The king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. He had studied Deuteronomy and seen that the good hand of God was upon Moses. Now, as he begins to apply the scriptures, he's saying, now the good hand is upon me. He has his own testimony. He has his own lived experience. Y'all, I don't want you to live off of my breadcrumbs. I want you to have your own lived experience with a God that is alive, that's relational. And in one season of my life, y'all, there was an extended season where, I, I might have mentioned this before, my character, Annie and I's character, was just totally slandered. It was a devastating season for me. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. The stress was physical. It was emotional. It was spiritual. It was impacting our marriage. It was impacting other relationships. It was a hard season. And just by God's sovereignty, Psalm 62 was the psalm that I was supposed to read in my Bible reading plan. I didn't do the finger method. You know, you know what I'm talking about? You know, I didn't do that. It was just what I was supposed to read that day. And I open up Psalm 62, and this is what I read. Psalm 62 is written by David, who had been unjustly maligned and persecuted by Saul. And in verse 3, he says, How long will all of you attack a man to batter him, 
He's like a leaning wall. He's a tottering fence. When I read that late one evening, y'all, I just started crying. I felt that. Just The Psalms are so beautiful. Being able to put words to your emotions. And I felt that. Like I felt like a leaning wall. Like I felt like a tottering fence. Like one more word, I'm done. I'm over. I can't withstand this any longer. But you know, that's not how the Psalm ends. It keeps going. Verse 5 says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Did you hear that? No, my, my, my hope is in God. I will not be shaken. Y'all, that night, I began to pray that psalm. Pray that psalm. And over time, praying it every day, praying that psalm. I will not be greatly shaken. I'm going to stand on the rock that is God. And you know what? Eventually, I was vindicated, which was great. But the greatest reward I got out of that season was a lived experience that God is a rock and God is a refuge. I knew it. I'd read it. I'd read it before. I knew it cognitively. But once you begin to apply the word of God to your life, you start having your own lived experience. Y'all, he is who he says he is. So prayer is scriptural. And the scriptures lead us to a deeper experiential relationship with God. So prayer is relational. Prayer is uh, scriptural. Let me give you one more. Actually, I'm going to give you a couple more. Thirdly, prayer is confessional. Look at verse 6. Nehemiah says, God, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you. We have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. You see, as Nehemiah reflected on who God is, he was subsequently reminded of who he is. You know that happens all the time. The more your awareness of who God is grows, the more your awareness of yourself continues to grow. And y'all, it ain't good. Like so often we think, as longer we walk with God, the, more, the better I think about myself. Actually, the longer I walk with God, the more I realize how desperately dependent I am on his grace. There's, a, there's a, a graph that we're going to put on the screen that you actually saw. If you were in grow groups this past spring, you saw this graph. I think it's so helpful. The longer you walk with God, the greater the cross ought to loom in your life. That top line there is the awareness of God's holiness. So the longer you walk with God, the more you get to know him, hopefully your awareness of God continues to grow. Now, does God's holiness get bigger? No. He is who he says he is. He never changes. He is holy forever and forevermore. But your awareness of who he is continues to grow, which in effect makes the awareness of your own sin continue to grow. And, and what should happen as you walk with God is you get more and more dependent upon the cross of Jesus Christ. Church, I think Nehemiah got this. You see, Nehemiah saw that there are no excuses for our plight. Nehemiah didn't try to blame this stuff away. He, he knew that they had brought this situation upon themselves. He didn't try to blame Babylon. He didn't try to blame Persia. He didn't try to blame the Samaritans who would withstood the building in Ezra chapter 4. He didn't even blame the devil. He just says, man, this is on us. This, this is our fault. Nehemiah church understood that it was sin, not the destroyed walls of Jerusalem that was the root of their problem. We've, we've got to get to know that too. And before petitioning God, and we're going to see his petition here in a second, Nehemiah knew he had to get right with God. I fear when we, when we look again at the church and we look at how we have failed to represent God, I, I fear that we just excuse it away. 
that we blame it away, that it's always everybody else's fault. I, I think it's just time for us to go, no, it's me. The, the, the root issue in this misrepresentation of God is me. It's my sin. It's our sin. I just want to burst a few bubbles. Can I do that? I've had a lot of coffee. The fact that we collectively misrepresent God, y'all, it has nothing to do with who's in office. It has nothing to do with your kids' access to technology. It has nothing to do with the state of public schools. It has nothing to do with Russia or with China. It has nothing to do with anything other than your own sin. This whole blame game of blaming sin on everything else has existed since the Garden of Eden. Right? When God came to Adam, was like, hey, man, what happened over here? He's like, the woman made me do it. And he goes to Eve, and he's like, hey, can somebody explain what happened over here? And he's like, yeah, the serpent made me do it. We've been doing this since the beginning. Guys, it's just time that we come to God in light of who he is and own our own stuff. Before Nehemiah launches into the physical building of these walls, he deals with the root of their problem, which was sin. We have to come confessionally, pray with confessional. Church, you don't need to fear confessing your sin to God. Did y'all know that? He knows it already. Like he knows. He knows the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. There's nothing that you have done or can do that will hide from him. He knows. And you know why it's so freeing to come to him confessionally? Because he is good. Because he is steadfast in his love that he is kind towards you. Listen, if you're new to the church, let me tell you something clearly. You do not have to clean yourself up to be accepted by God. You don't have to do it. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how bad it is. There are some sins in our culture that we magnify more than others. Murder, abortion, adultery. I don't, if that's your story, guess what? God still accepts you, loves you, wants you to come to him. You just have to come confessionally. And guess what? If you do, this is what 1 John 1 says. If you confess your sins, he is faithful to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That means you don't have to clean yourself up. You just confess, and he promises to clean you for you. That's the God that we serve, y'all. And you're like, man, that's just too good to be true. Good. You're getting it. You're beginning to understand the gospel. It's too good to be true. He's transcendent, but he's also intimate. So when you come to God in prayer, it reveals your sin. Pray confessionally. Let me give you one more. So prayer is, is um, relational. Prayer is scriptural. Prayer is confessional. Fourthly, prayer is supplicational. I said that with confidence, but I need to come clean. That's not a word. I looked it up. Supplicational is not a word, but it fits well for the outline, so we're going to say that it is today, okay? So prayer is supplicational. So what does it mean to, what is supplication? Webster's Dictionary says supplication is the act of asking. It's the act of asking. Prayer in its purest form is asking. Charles Spurgeon says, like it or not, asking is the rule of the kingdom of God. Jesus says, ask and you will receive, right? That's from the Sermon on the Mount. James, Jesus' half-brother, says, you do not have because you do not ask. Asking is a way that we declare our dependence upon him. So if you struggle in asking God of things, it may be because you're prideful. It may be because you're self-sufficient. Asking is the rule of the kingdom of God. So Nehemiah has prayed relationally, he's prayed scripturally, he's prayed confessionally. Now he gets to his ask. Look at verse 11. He says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. So here's the ask. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. 
Nehemiah's prayer was, God, give me mercy and give me favor in the eyes of King Artaxerxes, in the eyes of the Persian king. Nehemiah's torn up about what's going on in Jerusalem. He wants to do something about it, but he's a nobody. He's a slave. He's been raised in captivity. He has no rights. He has no entitlement. He didn't give a two weeks. If he tried to give two weeks, he would be beheaded by King Artaxerxes. He knows for this to happen, for this burden in my life to happen, I need God to move the heart of this man. So he petitions, God, give me mercy in the eyes of this man. And as we're going to see next week, God answered. God responded. And you know why I think God answered his prayer? Let me give you two reasons where I think God answered Nehemiah's prayer. First, God is good. Church, God is good. Like he actually wants to hear you pray and wants to respond to your prayer. Jesus says, listen, if which one of you, if his son asks for some bread, gives him a stone? And if, you, if your son asks for a piece of fish, ends up giving him a serpent. He's like, that's preposterous. By no means. And he says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father who is perfect in love give good things to those who what? Ask him. God responds to prayer because, because he's good, because he's a loving heavenly Father and he wants to answer your requests. But some of you just heard me say that and you kind of scoffed. You're like, yeah, right. If he's so good, why didn't he answer my prayers? Man, if that's, if that's the posture of your heart this morning, I, I would love to get a cup of coffee and just look you in the eye and say, I may not have answers to that. Because there's some mystery attached to prayer that I may not have an answer to. But you know, Scripture does have one answer for that question. Why does God not answer my prayer? Let me give you one reason according to Scripture. James, again, Jesus' half-brother says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. You ask to spend the answer of this request on your own passions. Church, oftentimes, more times than not, our supplications are not answered or granted by God because our motives are out of alignment with the will of God. And I think that's reason number two, that Nehemiah's prayer was answered. First was God is good. Second, I think he prayed according to God's will. 1 John 5 says this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he answers us. And you're thinking, how could Nehemiah be so sure of his motivations? Right? How, how can we be so sure that Nehemiah's motivations were in alignment with the will of God? Well, the answer lies in the outline of the sermon, with the outline of his prayer, because he didn't just launch into supplication. Right? He didn't hear about Jerusalem and just immediately rush into his ask. He began relationally. He began thinking about who God is and who God has revealed himself to be. He began scripturally. As he was reading scripture, he was reminded of the will of God. You want to know what God's will is? Get in the book. This is where his will is found. Then he prayed confessionally. He began emptying himself of all of his sin and all of his, his ill-conceived motivations so that when he got to the time of his supplication, he's an empty. George Mueller talked about the power of prayer, and he says that to, if you really want to succeed in prayer, you really want to get your prayers answered, you need to get to a place where you have no will of your own. That's where it begins. It begins emptying yourself of your motivations and your will so that we can come and hear his will. But church, let me give you one more secret from Nehemiah. We need to learn to pray persistently. It would be so easy to read Nehemiah chapter 1 and think, wow, that was a neat three-minute prayer. God responded quickly to that. He prayed, and then God answered. Within three minutes, it's all over. But listen, go back to verse 1 of Nehemiah chapter 1. It says, there the second sentence says, Now it happened in the month of Chislev. All right, now go back to Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, 
He prayed in the month of Chislev. He was granted the request in the month of Nisan. You know how long that was in between? Four months. Nehemiah prayed the same prayer for four months. Nehemiah was seeking God relationally, confessionally, scripturally, and bringing his supplication before God over the course of four months. Church, we have got to learn to pray persistently. Jesus, on his teaching and prayer, said, which one of you has a friend who will go to him at midnight and say, hey, friend, give me some three loaves of bread. I got a friend of mine that's just arrived on a journey. I don't have anything to put before him. He says, the man inside is going to say, do not bother me. The door's shut. My children are with me in bed. I'm not going to get up and give you anything. He says, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, but because of his persistence. Church, we can pray with persistence. Jesus wants you to, if you ask, keep on asking. Seek, keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. For four months, Nehemiah asked. And then next week in chapter two, we'll see what the answer is. All right, so let me conclude for us. How did Nehemiah go about rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem? He began with prayer. How should we go about rebuilding the image of God within the church? We should begin with prayer. Prayer is relational. Prayer is scriptural. Prayer is confessional. And prayer is supplicational. That's a word you can use. All right, so let me give you some practical application. If you have never run before, I would encourage 10 minutes of walking a day. You sign up for a marathon tomorrow, it is going to beat you into the ground. It's going to discourage you. It's going to break you. It's actually going to make you quit, and you're never going to want to run again, right? Even if you enjoy running, running a marathon may do that. Same principle applies to prayer. If prayer is new for you, prayer is something you want to grow in, don't set goals for yourself that's just going to beat you into the ground. Here's my encouragement. I'm going to give you homework, and, and no, we're not going to take attendance. Take five minutes each day this week. That's my homework. Five minutes each day this week, and, and do this. Open up Psalm 103. Write that down, Psalm 103. And during that five minutes... I want you to read a few verses of Psalm 103 and then just talk to God about who God is in light of that verse. Who is God revealing himself to be? Who is he relationally? Talk to God in response to Psalm 103. And then talk to God confessionally in light of who he is and in light of who you are according to that scripture. Talk to God confessionally. And then finally, I want you to make one ask of God this week. Every day this week, I want you to ask one thing of God. You ready? Lord, teach me to pray. That's the only request I want you to make from Psalm 103. Lord, teach me to pray. I believe he's going to respond mightily in that. So let me pray for us, and our team will come back up and lead us in a song of response. Father, we are so grateful for the example of Nehemiah. And Lord, it would be so easy, it would be all too easy to try to magnify this man's personality and temperament. But the reality is we can do more through prayer than anybody can through personality. Nehemiah has modeled that for us, Lord, and, and I pray that we would follow that example. Teach us to be a people of prayer. Help us grow from duty to delight in prayer. And as Keller said, we know that prayer grows as our knowledge of who you are grows. So God, show us your glory. Teach us who you are. Reveal to us who you are, not just cognitively, but experientially. May we all have, by this time next week, a deeper relationship with you, which then flows into a deeper prayer life with you which then flows into a deeper relationship with you. It's just this ongoing development where we get to glorify you and enjoy you forever. May we do that through prayer. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.